The following program is sponsored by Lindis Construction. This is the WCCO Home Improvement Show, brought to you by Lindis Construction. One call, one contractor. Lindis Construction provides Minnesota and Wisconsin with the best products and workmanship. They provide leaf guard gutters, asphalt roofing, metal roofing, seasoned guard replacement windows, exterior siding, remodeling, new construction, and more. If you've got questions, they've got answers this hour. Here's Denny Long and Andy Lindis. And good morning. Andy's taking the day off today, but guess who's here? Barry Strands is with us. Barry, good morning. Good morning, Denny. How are you this morning? I'm doing quite well. Thank you very much. And you are too, I uh, certainly hope. Absolutely. Excited to be here, sir. Good. And uh, the folks are excited. Our listeners are because they know that if they throw any particular kind of home improvement questions at you, You'll have an answer. I'll try to this make a, an answer this work. This is what we hope. I've set you <laughs> yeah, up for that. Yeah, thanks. Right. Yeah. High expectations is not always ideal, right? We want to lower expectations and then we can over-deliver. <laughs> but when you over-promise and under-deliver, boy, people are disappointed. Not good. Well, you know, I, I've, I've said this every time you're on the show, Barry, that a lot of, you know, we get new listeners all the time. And they're saying, who's this guy? That's, I know it's not Andy and it's Barry. Uh, who fills in? Uh, you, you're good friends with the Linda's family. Love these sure. guys. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. I know Kevin better than Andy so far in our journey because Kevin was in my classes years ago, and just found him delightful. And then I've met and interacted with Andy numerous times. I have a lot of respect for the whole family and for the culture that they've developed yes. there. I don't think it's fair to say anyone is perfect, but I can tell you that these people strive to give the very best of integrity, the best of quality, the best of follow-up. And when they've had particularly difficult clients where the expectations couldn't get communicated as well, maybe as we would would like, I've gotten to be involved in some of that uh, conversation to help uh, set expectations that would be accurate and, and reasonable. And so it's been fun to see their willingness to bend over backwards to make a customer it's satisfied. True, it really is. Uh, and you mentioned class, the word classes. And for those that don't know, you do, among other things, you, you wear a lot of hats. I do wear a few. And yeah. a, a, a teaching is another one. I've been involved in the teaching business in the Twin Cities for a long time. I got involved teaching real estate professionals about housing construction, and that moved into the areas of appraisal and real estate, where I teach, again, construction-related topics, but it's been a lot of fun. I work for Professional Education Resources uh, today, wonderful company, and I work for some of the major national companies as well, but get to go and do stuff. I'm going to be going to Nebraska in a couple of weeks and teaching for the National GRI program down there. So I get to explain construction stuff. Well, for for real estate agents, this is called the Graduate Realtor Institute, Mm. and it's a designation program that's designed to separate agents by giving them specific education that makes them more proficient in the industry. And you uh, know a little bit about codes as well. Well, and I, you know, it's funny. I get calls from builders all the time asking for code clarifications, and I I don't perceive myself to be a code expert. I know people who I would put in that category, but relative to what most builders know, they perceive me as an expert. And because I teach that in class, I don't have as much memorized as I'd like, but I know how to find it in the code book. And once you have that in place, and then you've interacted with building officials in various cities. You develop kind of an understanding of what the code intention is, and we try to help people understand some basic ideas. So many people, including builders, believe that building codes are for contractors who are licensed in the industry. We don't understand that code is for houses, and every person who does a remodel or a home improvement or even a repair on their home is under the jurisdiction of the Minnesota State Building Code. 
And whether it's enforced in a local jurisdiction is not relevant. What the code demands is what is relevant. And therefore, if you go to sell your home and don't have it built to code, you have a potential violation of an integrity clause, which basically would say you didn't tell the truth unless you told people you didn't build a code. So that gets to be its own little uh, potential challenge down the road when people are not communicating everything they should or, or need to in a real estate transaction. Another hat that you wear is uh, you work with a, uh, an organization called Kyle Hunt and Partners. Yeah, Kyle Hunt's a builder out in the west edge of town. The higher his end, offices. Though, right? Yeah, and I, I always find myself thinking medium higher end because I think it's reasonable to say that there are super high end customers sure. where stuff is $10 million plus. And there aren't very many of them, but we rarely do anything in that range. We're typically stuff that's going to be, well, we do small remodels as well, but primarily for customers we've worked with in the past. But the fun part about that is you get to work on stuff that's uh, just not what I could afford. I'm in houses where, you know, my monthly income wouldn't pay their taxes, <laughs> you know, and it's just a crazy paradigm to be in those places. And you, you work with some high expectation customers, and then you really strive to deliver as close to perfect is as humanly possible. So you get to see a lot of neat higher – that phrase maybe is a – we have to different, use a different phrase. But, you know, whether, whether it be hardware and, and kitchen yes. cupboards or Yes, stuff tree, that's imported like that. or stuff that's absolutely custom-made as a one-off for this front door, for example. Uh, the kinds of things where everything is very detailed, client-specific, has this orientation, niches that are designed for a piece of furniture – you know, we've done houses where they've got uh, uh, an old Wurzer record player, and and it's like they're going to house it in this little customized niche. We get the piece on site, or we get it into a studio. We measure it, and then we build an arched top piece with a one inch margin all the way around, and this thing slides perfectly into the niche we create at the time of a move in and things like that. Then you photograph this and go, "Oh, this was this is perfect." <laughs> But you don't have any margin for error with those kinds of things. And so there's a fairly high liability if you screw up. And as a result, we, you know, we work with human beings. And it's not, it's not uh, as perfect a world as we would wish. We have real materials. Wood expands and contracts. And I'm on a project right now where the wood was wetter than we would have, anyone would have liked, but we were in a hurry to close. And so when we spray-painted the exterior cedar, primed and painted it with two coats, after priming, we've had some shrinkage in the cedar pieces. Well, we've had to have the painter come back and then touch all that up. But the sensation in the heart of the owner is, you know, what have you done wrong? So, oh, well, sure. We, yeah. we, we use wood. <laughs> we, we used wood. We can't change how wood is going to behave, nor based on your desire and preference for schedule, can we do it as quickly or as, as slowly as would have been preferred. And with this kind of a summer and weather, Lots of contractors are behind schedule because the weather is just kicking their tails. Oh, I should say. Relative to trying to produce a reasonable schedule based on normal rain patterns. So I've got a job right now where we're putting in a little pool in a backyard, a little spa. Okay. And we just got rained out Thursday and Friday this week. And so that puts us two days behind schedule. And the people who have to follow them now, I have to back that up. We lose more rain days. We're going to have a tough time having that work finished by the day that we've given to close the, the project. You know, I want to ask you about, and you've been in the business since you were 15. So, so about yeah. 10 years. Yeah. You're, yeah. <laughs> I sometimes go, what is the math on that? Actually, 46 years I've I, been in this business personally working in the, in the construction industry. I want to ask you when we come back, and I've never asked you this before in all your appearances here, what, what has changed since you were that young kid to today as oh, far as sure. power to whatever the case. Yeah. Is I'd love yeah. to talk about that. All right. We're going to take this break. We invite our listeners 
to, if you have any kind of a home improvement question, this is the guy you want to chat with right now, either by phone or by text. Uh, that number, text number is 81807, or uh, give Barry a call, 651-989-9226. Let's take a break. We'll be right back with uh, more home improvement talk, brought to us by Linda's Construction every week. And good morning. Welcome back to our home improvement show where your phone calls and text messages for Barry Strands. Always welcome. If you do have any kind of a home improvement question, you want to talk with uh, Barry, 651-989-9226. Text is 81807. Uh, Barry, I w- we'll go back to my question about sure. about things that, that have changed in your industry since you began. But John in Maplewood is on the horn wanting to ask you something. Go ahead, John. Thank you. Oh, it's Joan. Oh, I'm Joan. sorry, Joan. <laughs> We're happy that you're here, Joan. I sit on the board of a homeowners association, and it's been determined that we have hail damage on our shingles from a hailstorm from last summer. Yes. And I, I'm concerned about going ahead and having the insurance come out and look at to see whether or not there is damage, because I'm concerned about having claims. So is there a way to determine how badly the shingles have been compromised from the hail damage, and is it worth going through having them replaced and also considering the fact that I don't want damage to people's interiors of their home, but I'm worried about filing those claims. We have to have a large claim in the association, and I don't want to get dropped by an insurance company, and I don't want our rates to go up high. Sure. Um, I can't speak to the insurance side of the question very well because that's going to be, uh, I think, particular to the provider. But from the roofing standpoint, most adjusters who come out to look at a potential hail claim, they're working on a specific criteria that's accepted by the industry relative to size of the hail hits and the number of hail hits in a 10-square-foot area. So they map out, mark out, and then circle hail hits, size, and relative damage to determine if there's enough damage on any surface in order to justify a claim. Now, typically when hail comes through, we have two options. It hits the entire roof equally, or if it's wind-driven, we get one side hit more than the other. And normally, most policies allow the whole roof to be replaced if even only one side's been damaged. But that's based on how the insurance policy has prorated the roof and the repair requirements. I don't see any problem with having an insurance agent adjuster come out and take a look at the roof and determine whether or not the conditions warrant a claim. Then, of course, the process you have to do internally is deductibles and whether or not uh, how you handle that from that point forward. But I, I personally think that Due diligence requires that we evaluate whether or not the roof is in significant damage. I don't have any interest in uh, burning an insurance company nor doing undue or unnecessary work. At the same time, I don't want an owner's uh, property to be damaged and not be addressed when the opportunity was given to address it. It is a dicey one. I think your concerns are well-founded, and I can't give you – what you should do as an outcome, obviously, but I do think there's just wisdom in, in pursuing at least looking at the roof to seeing what kind of condition you're in. All right. There's your advice, Joan. Thank you. 651-989-9226 if you want to fill that open line. Otherwise, send Barry a text, 81807. Here's one that came in a bit ago, Barry. I have land with both sandy and rocky soil and want to build a small home. What do you see as pluses and minuses of each? 
Well, it's interesting because in the unified soil classifications system, we look at rocks and sand kind of in the same category. Now, size of boulders, that kind of thing is going to be much difficult or much more difficult in the excavation and soil preparation process. But both of those soil configurations are linked together as well-drained group one soils, which essentially means that we get wonderful site drainage in rocks or sand gravel mixture soils. So that's the preferred soil to build on. The biggest issue is whether or not we have an undue amount of excavation relative to size of the rocks that are in the soil. In my mind, if you want to build, don't hesitate. The excavator will clear off the, the rocks that are in the way relative to the footings and the size of the foundation, basement, et cetera, all those questions. And, I, you know, that's really good news. Way better than finding a clay that's mucky in oh, your yeah. soil base. So a uh, higher choice there to go ahead and go for it. Uh, text number, by the way, if you want to ask Barry that way, 81807. Another one says this, Barry, how difficult is it to replace the boot around the plumbing vent on the roof? It is cracked. Well, the process of actually replacing that flange, that boot, is not difficult. The issue is location, proximity, getting on the roof, the danger of being on the roof. I think it's wise in a situation like our, you know, this radio show to say if you are doing a two-story application, you've got a lot of risk there relative to your own health and safety. So I would want to urge on the side of, of care. But once you're on the roof surface – uh, if it's the 412 or 512, what we call a walkable roof, then the process to remove the shingles around that boot, putting them, the, the new boot on, and it's simply removing, there'll be some nails. You pry the old boot off, slip it up over the plumbing pipe, slip the new one back down, and then we will install new shingles around the surface. There's a number of how-to videos on the Internet that would give you the process. For a roofer to come in and do that, he'll have as much time setting up the ladder and taking it down and making sure he hasn't left any debris as he will doing the actual boot replacement. I was asking how things have changed since you were a young lad uh, getting into the construction business with your grandfather, I believe. But to think about just what the Internet has done for, for do-it-yourselfers. It is a phenomenon, obviously, where information is being delivered to the Internet as a way for which do-it-yourselfers can evaluate, look, practice, see, visualize the complexity of a project. It's changed the industry in ways I don't even think we understand. What happens, of course, is that because you've watched someone else do it and do it maybe very well, it doesn't mean you can reproduce oh, that level of expertise. So there's my uh, daughter sent out a, a tweet last week about a house that she's renting temporarily, and the tile work is from a, a lining up straight perspective. It's abysmal. And she she has a hashtag, don't do it yourself or something like <laughs> something like this. One of her uh, tweets out because there, there's even people who do this for a living have to meet a certain expectation in terms of aesthetic quality. And you know, I've had a number of people who have said, I, I can't do the work the way it needs to be done. Even though I could do it, it won't look right when I'm done. So can I hire you to come and do it? And years ago, the answer was yes. It isn't anymore. I don't have time. But I find myself looking at that situation and going, there's a different level of expertise in what you're actually producing. And this is why this expectation for most of our contracts in the 1970s said in a reasonable and workmanlike manner. 
That was the quality expectation. Today, we have legislation and a state rule that requires there to be even a hearing between the Department of Labor and a builder if we haven't met the warranty expectations Mm. of the homeowner. And it's a long process to discuss. I wouldn't take airtime to do it. But there's actually quite a bit of warranty information relative to what a builder's expectations must be and then where we're in flux. And that's why builders are now required to give a document to a homeowner prior to signing a contract that essentially tells them what quality expectations they have a right to expect on this project. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Hang on, Barry. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to take a break here. If you have a home improvement question, as I said, you want to talk with uh, with Barry, either by phone or by text, 651-989-9226, or your text questions, go to 81807. Hey, good morning. We still have time for your home improvement questions of uh, Barry Strands, and uh, either by text or by phone. Barry, we have both. All right. So let's uh, put you back to work here. Uh, Mark is calling from Chaska, I believe. Mark, you're on CCO with Barry. Hi, Barry and Denny. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, with all the rain that we've had uh, down in Chasco, we've got a pretty much clay uh, base uh, for foundation or for under the foundation of the sure. house. Yep. We've got a lot of a lot of sump pumps that uh, you know are pumping water out. And the question that I had was, how often, you know, with those sump pumps working as hard as they do, how often? Um, is it prudent to be uh, replacing those sump pumps? Well, the challenge is to understand and anticipate when they're going to fail. We've got some houses on Minnetonka where we're at the water table with our basements, and so they're running, you know, probably 75% of every day. They're kicking water out. And when you have that kind of load on them, two years is a likely anticipation of the sump pump. Mm. Now, normally, if you have a sump pump turning on several times a day, and yet we have a high water situation like we're in now, you'll see a shortened life. But now you might be looking at a life of five to six years on a sump pump rather than what would be normal life expectancy, which would be 10 to 15. So it all depends on usage, and it's very, very tough to articulate. And I don't think that we can anticipate pumps going bad and know when they will go bad. And some people want to err on the side of safety by replacing. But if the pump is more than five years old and you're in a heavy clay and you know that the pump regularly runs, it's probably time. Oh, okay. That's the rule of thumb for you. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate that. Mark leaves that line open at 651-989-9226. Lynn is calling from Rogers with a question. Lynn, you're on CCO. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I have two pieces of siding on the side of my garage that pull apart from each other, like an inch to two inches. It's very difficult to pull the siding back, and I'm just, and then we get it back, and it'll do it again. And I'm just wondering what could cause that and how to prevent it. So is it a vinyl siding material? Yes. Okay. Uh, a couple of things are taking place with vinyls. Remember that they have a linear expansion. That's why we don't produce them in greater lengths than 12 feet. A 12-foot piece of vinyl siding can expand up to 7 eighths of an inch within a 24-hour period of time and then contract based on wow. temperature and solar. So because of that, we know they're going to move. If you've got a gap opening up between them, uh, I would argue that the installer made some mistakes. Likely you've got them anchored at both ends, and so the shrinkage that's taking place within the scope of a day is taking place at the seam where you're seeing it pull apart. Now, a cider would come out, and he would do what we call an unzip. He would pull the pieces above it apart and access the siding piece that's giving you trouble. Those would get reinstalled 
correctly so they can float along the nail heads and then the remaining pieces would be then put back in place. A good siding contractor can solve the problem by reinstalling that section of the sidewall. Okay. It's doable. Yeah. It's doable. It's fixable. It's just annoying that it was done wrong in the first place. Okay. There you go, Lynn. Uh, 651-989-9226 or if you want to shoot Barry a text, 81807. Before we get back to the text uh, screen, Gary is calling from Buffalo with a uh, question. Go ahead, Gary. Yes, I have a question on insulation. Sure. Our uh, house is uh, 17 years old. Okay. And the last uh, two summers, uh, we get a hairline crack in the ceiling, and in the wintertime, it closes up. And so you can't even see it. I, do you think, uh, I wonder, the insulation? Uh, so down? where is the crack located, the one that you see in the ceiling? Well, it... it Mostly, it's uh, it's on a longer span. Yep. Is it in the middle of the room or toward the end near the exterior wall? Uh, it's it's in the middle of the room. Yep. I no, I don't think it has anything to do with the insulation. Uh, I think that what we're seeing is typically moisture generation in the humid conditions in an attic space, and they're causing some expansion within the framing lumber itself. And as a result, the seam is moving. And then as that lumber dries out and tightens back up, we're getting then that crack shrinking. Remember that wood will take on moisture properties. It typically, dry lumber in a Minnesota house is somewhere around 6 to 8%. That's its dry condition. But if we have a damp attic space, again, it's so humid out right now. Yeah, it is. With a, with a certain species of wood, like an eastern spruce, the amount of moisture it takes on is greater than other wood species or wood fibers. And because of that, it, it overly expands as it gets more moist. And so we're seeing linear expansion because the wood fiber is, in fact, picking up moisture mm. and the crack is showing up as a result. And I don't know of a good solution to that except to, you know, keep your attic moisture level uh, consistent throughout the year. And I don't have any piece of equipment that makes sense to do that. In my mind, it's one of those things we learn to live with. Okay, there you go, Gary. But it's not a structural failure, Danny. Okay, right, something like that. It's just right. annoying. It's a cosmetic annoying. That's a good annoyance. way of putting it. All right, thanks, Gary. Six five one nine eight nine nine two two six. Let's go back to the text messages. That number is eight one eight zero seven. Here's one about footings. Footings for a deck. The holes fill with water at thirty six inches deep. The water stays at 36 inches. (laughs) Will the concrete footings work or will they probably fail? And is Diamond Pier the only other option? Okay, so typically when I hear that, I'm thinking this is water table. Now, I would need to know more about the house to verify that that's the case, but that's generally what we're at. We're hitting water. We do dewatering pumps all the time and we suck water out of holes, pour the concrete real quick, and then once that concrete sets up, we're fine. That could be done, or a dewatering hole in the near proximity to the footings could be created. That's an option. But if we're only talking about a simple deck, then the structural integrity of that is not particularly problematic. What I would do is I would dump concrete raw, bag mix, dry into the hole, let the water that's down there actually Ah. become the water that I use to mix my concrete. So in my mind, that's a very simple and actually fortuitous situation because I can just use that water. By code, we only need 42 inches of depth in our footings in the first place in the Twin Cities. So I only need six inches below his water line. I'll pull that water back up, use it to mix my concrete, and we'll be great. 
I hear a lot of good things about the, what the texture mentioned, the Diamond Pier. Yeah, Diamond Pier right. systems are essentially a concrete block that's engineered, I should say a concrete mass, engineered to take pins that are driven down through it to get down to the frost depth required by code. But then this concrete piece sits on the surface. I researched these for class, I don't know, six, maybe seven years ago and found very, very effective. And at the time, a lot of building officials were unsure how they felt about that, didn't know if they liked them or looking for more data to identify how they would be functionally. But everything that's come out has said these are really, really, really easy installation because you can put them in after your deck is built, some cases, and then make sure you get them located perfectly. But also that they can handle uh, untamable soils quite nicely. But with anything, the rods will get driven in. Make sure you call Gopher State and get your power lines. Because, well, I'm not digging, so I don't need to do it now. It's what people think. Yes, you do. You can drive a, 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 a rod right through a power line or through a gas line right. as easily, or at least nick it, and, and create problems for yourself. So don't forget that that part still exists. That's, that's a good point. Uh, let's go back to the phones, Barry. Sharon is calling from St. Paul, I believe. Sharon, you're on CCO with Barry. Yes, good morning. Uh, I have a question for uh, uh, buying, purchasing a new roof. Sure. The roof that I have now, it's 20 years old, and I've never disputed that. But uh, and the granules, uh, it's a GAF, was a GAF roof, and the granules are, I would say, 70% worn off. Sure. And can an insurance company then, uh, I had it inspected, can they, uh, they can force you now to um, bring it up to code, so to speak? No. There's nothing that requires that that work be done, that the shingles be improved. If your house is leaking, there's nothing that the code does to say your house is leaking until a building official's inside and says this is an unsafe condition. As long as the house is safe for human habitation, uh, we can still have uh, water inside the home. Once it gets moldy, it's a different discussion. But no, there's nothing that the city can do to make you take your roof off and put a new roof on. Um, it, they might want to, but I, as I understand the code, it's just not possible from that perspective. The other issue to consider is that almost every sh- – I mean, everyone I've ever looked at, I'm sure there might be plenty I haven't seen, but I've looked at a number of these. And the manufacturer provides a prorated warranty, which means that if the roof fails in the first two, three, four, five years, you might get a substantial amount of money back on the bad shingles. But if it's a 20-year-old roof on a 30- or 25-year warrantied roof – you have pennies on the dollar that you can recover. There's just nothing left. And as a result, there's no sense in even bringing something about to say, well, what are you, what's you, is the roofing company going to give me back for these bad shingles? They didn't last the full warranty period. And the answer is virtually nothing and probably not worth even trying to recover any dollars that, that way. All right. There you go, Sharon. Thank you. Uh, text, uh, if you want to send Barry a text, 81807 or call him 651-989-9226. Uh, a texter wants your thoughts, Barry, on a corner shower with glass on two sides. Uh, corner showers, glass on two sides. I, I mean, I'm looking for the doorway location and how we would establish that. There are neo-angle showers that are put into home improvement centers all the time, and I've never had no problem with those. They work just fine. Spatial considerations or two-sided glass, we do two-sided glass showers and, and angles. They're silicone together, and they work just fine. I have no problem with that. So I'd like to know a little more about the configuration. But for high-end showers, nothing problematic about doing a corner glass. They're cool-looking. Okay. 
Yeah. And it's all really about how much you're willing to spend and what kind of a look you're after. We get to see some really fine custom showers. I bet showers. you do. I just got done managing a steam shower installation. We measured for the glass this week, and I can't wait to see all the pieces come together, the house we're going to deliver at the end of August to the homeowner. And this is one of those where there's no curb. and you know, There's no thing that you step over oh, to get sure. into the shower. And so pitching, sloping, water control became quite nuanced to make sure that we had a legal drainage system. And then because it's a steam shower, you can't let any steam get into the wall, especially like an exterior wall of the oh, building. Yeah. That would be disastrous. So all the details had to be done very, very carefully. But it was a fun installation. Oh, great. You Has a heated mirror. No kidding. Yeah, so that the mirror will never fog up <laughs> inside the shower. So you can shave. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, goodness. oh, yeah, I should have two of these. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's cool. Get me one of those. Right? Yes, exactly. All right. Hang on, Barry. We're going to take a break. If you uh, want to call in your home improvement question, by all means, 651-989-9226. There's a line open. Or send a text, 81807. Back with more home improvement talk here on 830WCCO at 70 degrees. Uh, good morning. Welcome back to this portion of our home improvement show brought to us by Linda's Construction every week. Filling in for Andy today is our friend Barry Strands, who is uh, helping us out both, uh, as usual, text-wise and uh, phone call-wise. And Barry Barb in Wood Lake, I believe, has a, a question for you. Barb, go ahead. Barry's listening. Uh, yes, hi. Um, we have a turn-of-the-century house, and uh, we had it rewired probably about 10 years ago. Sure. And the rewiring, we added uh, wiring to our attic with plug-ins. We added outside plug-ins to the house. We redid the, the wiring in the in the garage. So it, it's uh, with enough plug-ins, even outside. And um, and the company said there would be an inspector coming to check the house. Well, the inspector never really showed up till about six, seven years later. Okay. And then inspects the wiring and then says we're not up to code, that instead of a 12 box, we needed an 18 box. And um, I talked to the electrician again, and he said um, he didn't think that was possible because we, we don't have enough room for all that wiring since we had the wiring all done. And um, so I don't know what to do. You know, if we sell our house, it's not going to be up to code, you know. Sure. And uh, so he just advised that we'll just have to sell the house as is. Yes. What do you think, Barry? Well, I think the issue is so long as we disclose what we know, we're not in any violation of having been – uh, we have no legal risk in the transaction. So what we have to tell people is this is what happened. This is what we know. This is what this guy said. This is what this guy said. We've had no problem with functionality. And a buyer then would have the opportunity to have the electrical system looked at by an electrician, and then they can make a decision on purchasing or not. I don't – it doesn't sound like there's a problem to me uh, except from a code – remember, code is a standard – it doesn't mean it doesn't work if it doesn't meet code. It means it doesn't meet the code standard. So while we may have a box that's crowded, so long as the circuits themselves aren't tripping based on load that's applied, we haven't got an issue. 
Now, the problem, of course, is could they trip if we were to put more uh, more load on them? And the answer is yes. And and there's just too little information to be able to comment wisely on that. I don't want to set someone up for failure. But Barb, as long as you tell people this is what happened, this is the story, then you've got no risk of someone coming back to recriminate you in the future because you would you did full disclosure. There you go. Yeah, disclosure. All right. Thanks, Barb. Good luck with that. Uh, let's see. Here's a texter that says, uh, good morning, Denny and Barry. Any chance that Barry can speak to his opinion and or recommendations regarding different smart home technologies. Smart home technologies are so vast today. I think that we, I mean, we started looking at cabling Cat5e years ago and thought this is going to be the panacea because we'll have capability to upgrade. And then Wi-Fi technology came along and all of a sudden nobody wants to have hardwired anything anymore. We're going to Wi-Fi everything. Today, obviously, we can control lights, we can control sound, we can control our uh, furnace, air conditioning, air handling equipment, all from our cell phones with apps and fairly accessible program systems that you can get it at a big box store or through a dedicated electrical company. My comment on them would be to start down any pathway. There's technologies that are different for each based on the bandwidth of the technology, based on the intensity of the signals, based on what load is on the house and what we're trying to accomplish. It is a very, very complex discussion to be able to give it its due, and I would be the wrong man to, to address it fully. However, I would speak to the idea that because we can do some simple things like watching our front door, locking our homes remotely, that those technologies that are now available over the counter can offer, especially those who travel a lot, yeah, some yeah. great peace of mind. And I think those are well worth looking into. Very good. Yeah. Here's a text that says, enjoyed uh, sitting in Barry's classes a number of times. Uh, question is, need to redeck my rotting 80s cedar uh, ground level deck. Can I reuse the existing green treated uh, framing structure is one question. And secondly, how to tell if that needs replacing too. I, I looked at these situations frequently and, and find myself always taking it on a case by case basis. So I don't ever think that there's one size fits all as an answer. So I would actually look at the existing condition of the cedar – I'm sorry, the uh, subdecking, which will be typically 2 by 8 or 2 by 10 treated lumber. Treated lumber back in the 80s, sometimes southern yellow pine, sometimes red pine, and different levels of chemical and types of chemical, but more often than not, chromated copper arsenate. That's a very resilient material. It'll stay long into the wood. If that's the case, then I'm only looking to poke around in the surface of the, those joist members to find out whether or not there's rot and how much. Now, if there's damage in the first half inch or so, then any board I put on that is going to compress as I screw them in or as I nail them in. And if I've got a half inch of damage, I'm replacing or I'm coming alongside. It's called sistering with a two-by treated lumber glued in place and screwed to that. And that becomes the new uh, bonding point for my decking. But it's going to have to be determined by the situation you're in. I did one, I don't know, 18, 19 years. And when I pulled my decking off to replace my decking, while there was a couple of spots that felt a little soft, it certainly wasn't worth doing an entire mm. rebuild. And I went ahead and put new material over the top of that with confidence. There was no problem. Yeah, it's just hard to know. I mean, it's like how much damage is there is the whole question. Case by case. Yep. Yep. Poke it with a screwdriver. There you go. I don't know if you can – I know you, you have an idea of this, but how much, uh, Texas says, does a concrete driveway add value to a home instead of asphalt? Well, I've been asked this question numerous times in class, and here's what the appraisers always say. What is the expectation of the customer at that price point in that locale? 
It's always about expectation. And only if you hit a tipping point where 80% of all of the driveways in that location are concrete is asphalt perceived to be lesser. So if you see a mix of both uh, concrete and asphalt driveways, you can go ahead and put an asphalt and never see a value change based on the appraisal valuation of the home because the market doesn't care. Now, obviously, concrete's more expensive, as is pavers, for example. But the market doesn't say, oh, I'll pay you more. They say, oh, that's an upgrade I get for free. Mm -hmm. And typically, the appraiser says, well, if I've got this benefit, here's the driveway. But maybe I've got some age or some damage to siding. Well, it's a trade-off. It's a wash. So to line item value for a particular point would only work when you do what's called a cost approach appraisal. Well, in almost every case today, we do comparison appraisals. We don't do uh, cost-based appraisals. And as a result, we don't find those kind of things having value. All right, real fast. We have seconds. How deep should a sump pump be installed? My theory is the deeper it is, the less effective it'll be. Well, a sump pump to the basket is needing to be down at the base of the basket. But if we're talking about another location, I wouldn't know what it would be. Bottom of the basket's where the sump pump's supposed to go. Okay. Pull the water out. Good to see you. Nice job in the forecast. Yeah, thanks. We'll see you. <laughs> I was, we'll I see was you. nervous, Danny. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Barry Strand.